Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Several years ago, there was an article that appeared in Psychology Today entitled, Have You Been Falsely Accused? How Do You Respond When You Are Misperceived? It began by the author giving a personal experience. He said, quote, Attending Catholic school in Brooklyn, I felt loved by the Catholic nuns, nun who was my second grade teacher. But one cold morning, that quickly changed. We were lining up to enter the classroom when the nun suddenly shouted, spit out the gum. Being a good Catholic boy, I never considered flaunting the rules, so I was stunned at the accusation. I'm not chewing gum, he feebly replied. I was confident that my protest would resolve the matter but my innocence was shattered again. Yes, you are chewing gum, the nun insisted. Don't lie. Ouch. I could feel in my stomach churning and a horrible sinking feeling to be assaulted by a second accusation. Sinking into deep trouble, I wondered if I dared to protest again. I trusted that if I spoke the truth, justice would prevail. Mustering some courage, I muttered, but I'm not chewing gum. Look, and I opened my mouth so she could witness the lack of evidence. The final blow to my dignity and innocence descended when she coldly responded, that's because you swallowed it. (laughs) Yikes. Nothing I could say or do would change her perception. I was in an emotional prison with no get-out-of-jail-free card. I felt powerless, helpless, a tragic character as in a nightmare. The negative uh, mirroring damaged the interpersonal bridge, which created shame. Our relationship was never the same again. I now understand this episode was an imitation of the rough and tumbling of real life that oftentimes we not seem as we are as we really are. Being condemned as guilty invokes shame and being accused causes us to feel disrespectful and bad. You ever been falsely accused? Let me ask it another way. Are you breathing? Uh, you don't have to be very old for it to start. If you have siblings, I suspect it starts somewhere around the age of five. One of your siblings accuses you of doing something or blaming you for something that perhaps they did. And the older you get, the worse it gets. So that, uh, you know, when you're a teenager or an adult, then you could be falsely accused of lying or stealing or something even worse. I have had counseling situations where 
there was a couple, and he was or she was accusing the other of having an affair when it was later demonstrated that that really was not true. What do you do when you're falsely accused? Well, interestingly enough, it happened to some people in the Bible. Uh, the matter of fact, the Apostle Paul experienced it, as he mentions in Romans chapter 3, and even says he was slandered because of a misunderstanding of what he was teaching. Or perhaps in their case, it was deliberate. The psalmist also experienced that, and his experience is particularly interesting, not only because of what it was about, but also because of the way he handled it, which is what we need to know. So may I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 26. And while you're turning, let me say that clearly in this passage, David is being falsely accused. We do not know exactly what was happening. However, reading between the lines, we can sort of figure out that he was being falsely accused of fraternizing with ungodly men and thus being untrue to the Lord. So the false accusation he's dealing with here has to do with his spiritual character. With that in mind, Let's read verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind, my heart, for, my lo for your loving kindness is before my eyes. I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me, and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place in the congregation. I will bless the Lord. Now, in this passage of Scripture, David is obviously talking directly to the Lord. It's a prayer, if you will, as well as a song. All the Psalms are songs. And at the same time, he's making some requests. There are basically two requests, and then there is a conclusion at the end. So, look, the first request is in the first couple of verses. He says in verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I've walked in my integrity. Look at verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. So the first request uh, expressed in these first couple of verses and expanded in the verses that follow is, Lord, I want you to examine me. So he's being falsely accused, as is evident as you dig into the depths of the passage, 
But he begins by saying, Lord, I just want you to examine me. And he lays himself bare before the Lord. The word vindicate in verse 1 actually means judge. I want you to judge me. And the word integrity, the Hebrew word, means integrity, but it can also mean innocence. So what he's saying in this opening verse is, Lord, judge me and see that I am innocent. He's appealing to the high supreme court of the Lord himself. Now he's not claiming that he's sinless. He's just claiming that he's innocent of this particular false accusation. And it's important that we understand that. Now notice he says, uh, I have also trusted in the Lord, I will not slip. So his argument is that because he has trusted the Lord, he has, he's innocent of this particular false accusation. And that's the argument in that first verse. And there's also perhaps the idea here that he is saying, vindicate me and judge me to prove that I am innocent and to show others that I am innocent. At any rate, he's opening himself up to the Lord and saying, Lord, you judge me. He also says, and it's basically the same idea in verse 2, examine me. But what he adds is prove me, try my mind and my heart. Wow, that's an interesting statement. By mind, he probably has reference to his motives. And by heart, he's probably talking about his affections or his passions, which are being questioned, his affections for the Lord. So he's not just saying uh, examine the actions. He's saying examine the heart. Examine my motives. Examine Examine my passions. Examine me internally as well as externally. Now, the point is, he's confident that he's going to be declared not guilty. He's fully persuaded that he's going to be acquitted by the Lord. And that's why he's coming before the Lord. He's claiming he's innocent of this particular false charge. Now, what he does next is sort of offer proof of that. So he says in verse 4, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. As a matter of fact, I hate the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So what he's saying is simply this. goes back to the end of verse 3. For your loving kindness is ever before my eyes, and I've walked in your truth. And more specifically, I have not sat with idolaters and uh, hypocrites and evildoers. Uh, that's his point. Now, the idea is not just that he went to dinner with them. Uh, to sit with idolaters in this context has sort of the idea of approving fellowship with them. I'm with them because I approve of their idolatry. I'm participating in their idolatry. And so when he says I have not sat with idolaters, he doesn't mean I didn't go to dinner with them. He means I didn't participate in their idolatry. Or when he says something about not sitting with hypocrites, 
Again, he's saying, I'm not a willing partner with them. So he's not so much speaking about his social interaction as he's talking about his spiritual commitment. And he's saying, now I'm being accused of just because I've been with them that I'm participating in their sin, and that's what is not true. So, he says, I hate that. Did you see that? Huh. Verse 5, I have hated the assembly of evildoers. Did you know that if you're going to be truly spiritual, you need to hate? Now, I preached my share of times that what spiritual maturity is about is loving, and it is, but there's also some hate involved. If you're going to be strictly biblical, there's some things you should love and there's some things you should hate. You should hate evil. And that's what David is saying. Spurgeon said, a man who does not hate terribly does not love heartily. When you love deeply, you also hate deeply the things that are the opposite of love. So, he is uh, simply saying, I'm not part of that company. By the way, which also reminds us about um, the company we keep, does it not? That uh, there's some company you just shouldn't keep, especially if they're evildoers who are influencing you to participate in their sin. Someone has said, as a good man in concert makes another better and enables him to do much more good, so bad men in combination with one another make them worse so that you become like the camp company you keep. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, evil companions corrupt good manners. It's an old translation of, you are affected by the company you keep. And so David is saying, I hate that company. I would never participate in their sin. He goes on to say in verse 6, I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim your voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. So you got to put this in context. He just said, I hate the assembly of evildoers and now he says, I'll go to your altar. Modern translation. I'd rather go to church than go to a bar. That's the kind of thing he's saying. Uh, verse 8, he says, I'm, by the way, wash my hands simply is a figure of speech saying, I'm innocent. He's, and then I, I'm going to go, I'm, I hate that assembly, I'm going to go to this assembly, and I'm going to praise you in your assembly. So he says in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So again, he is suggesting that, Lord, I want your place, not that place. And you know that because you know my heart. You know my actions as well. So I'd rather go to a Bible study than some gambling hall. That's sort of the idea. I love you and assemble with your people, and I'm being falsely accused of participating with evildoers, and that is simply not true. 
by the way, I think we could make the point here that this is very important, by the way, if you were to understand the spiritual life, even the New Testament. He's not only saying, I'm separated from, he's saying, I'm separated to. So I think we get the idea sometimes I'm spiritual because of things I don't do, and that's good. But ultimately, it's being separated to the Lord that is real spirituality. So hating evil is one thing, but ultimately the issue is that you love the Lord your God. So what's happening in the first part of this passage is rather simple. David is being accused falsely of participating with people who are sinners, meaning participating in their sin, and he is saying, I take my case to the Lord. Lord, you know my heart. That's not true. I did not do that. And you know I hate that assembly and I love your house. Now, that's a very interesting way to approach being accused falsely. You ever been accused falsely? How did you respond? Did you uh, get angry? Did you um, get upset? Of course you did. (laughs) Or did you take it to the Lord? Yeah, right. Paul, apparently, was being judged by some of the people in the church at Corinth. So, I'm going to tell you now the way to handle being falsely accused. You ever been falsely accused? All right, here's the way you handle it, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Moreover, it is required of a steward, a steward's, of the mysteries of God. Hold on, I'm, I'm reading verses 1 and 2, and I'm excited. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Wow. <laughs> now, he didn't say it was nothing. It did amount to something. But he said small. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you. Because he knows he's innocent. And then he says this, or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet that doesn't justify me. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now write that down, and the next time you get falsely accused, you just take it to the Lord. That's what you do with it. And you say, this is more a commentary on you than me. And it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I don't even judge myself. And if I just, Lord, you know my heart, you know my mind, you judge me. How's that? All right. That's the first request that he makes in this passage. Back in Psalm 26, there is sort of a second prayer. He says in verse 9, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. Wow. Why would he say that? Well, he seems to be suggesting that some of these people were bloodthirsty. They were murderers. And he anticipates God judging them And he's simply saying, 
don't judge me with them. Another way to say, I'm not part of them. But in the analysis of the passage, this is sort of a second kind of prayer. So he separated himself from them, and in essence he's saying, Lord, you do the same. You separate me from that crowd, and when you judge them, uh, don't include me. So he says in verse 10, whose hands, uh, in whose hands, that is these bloodthirsty men, is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. Now he's already mentioned they're evildoers and idolaters, and now he's uh, getting even more specific. They have sinister schemes, which perhaps is to harm somebody, and they are taking bribes. And he is saying, I am not part of that company. Don't blame me for any of that. I'm innocent. I'm not perfect. I've got some other problems, but that's not one of them. And that's the kind of attitude he has. Kind of interesting, um, in talking to people about the Lord over the years, I've had, and I've said to them things like, uh, you know, the Bible teaches we're all of sin and come short of the glory of God, right? We're all sinners. And most people will say, yeah, that's right. I've had some say, what do you mean? And they're going to defend their fact they're not sinners. And here's what they say. I never murdered anybody. You ever had anybody do that? You know? I've often wondered, why didn't they say I never told a lie? They never do that. Uh, they always pick some big, 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 big sin that obviously they didn't commit, like I never murdered anybody. Well, David does that, only he's doing it positively. He's saying, I never did that, and he means it. In their case, uh, he's saying, they're saying, I'm using it as an excuse. He's using it to vindicate his uh, righteousness. As a matter of fact, he's doing it legitimately, and they are not. So, Basically, the idea of this passage is real simple. I am being falsely accused. I'm innocent. And Lord, I'm going to ask that you not judge me for their sin. Go judge them. Now, if you do that, and this is the third thing he does in this passage, he says, I'll praise you. So look at verse 11. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity redeem me and be merciful to me. So, having called on the Lord to do what is right, the psalmist promises to do the same. You do right by me, and I'm going to go do right by you, and when I get a chance, I'm going to praise you. Which becomes even clearer in the last verse, which is next. But before we look at that, I want you to look at verse 11. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity, redeem me, be merciful to me. Does that bother you? Was David saved? Why did he say, redeem me? Now that's an important little observation for this reason. If you read the Psalms and pay attention, you will see that the psalmist is constantly praying, Lord, save me. Well, you're already saved. Why are you praying, save me? And the answer is 
that the word simply means deliver. It means that in Hebrew, it means that in Greek. So that when the psalmist uses the word, he is in essence saying, save me from the trouble I'm in. All right, you need to know that if you're going to read the Psalms and see what he's saying. He's not talking about being saved spiritually. He's talking about being saved physically from some kind of danger. Now, that's very clear, and I think you pick that up first. But what you also need to know is that the word redeemed is used the same way. Now, we use the word saved and redeemed in the New Testament of being saved from sin and being redeemed from sin because Christ died for us or rose from the dead and we trust in Christ and we say we are saved from the penalty of sin. We say we are redeemed from sin. And that's the way the New Testament uses those words. By the way, it also uses the word saved to be saved physically. Uh, James 5, he that saves a... The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and it's talking about physical, not spiritual. But in the, New, in the Old Testament, uh, being saved and being redeemed are being used of uh, things physical. So in essence, he is saying, redeem me, which means ransom me from trouble that I'm in. And in this case, the trouble is being falsely accused. So he ends up in verse 12, and he says, My foot stands in an even place in the congregation. I will bless the Lord. So he ends by saying, in essence, I, Lord, you get me out of this mess, and I am going to praise you. And I'm going to do it publicly. Look at that. I will bless the Lord. He says, my foot shall stand in an even place in the congregation. I will bless the Lord. So let me give you a little uh, hint, spiritually. You ever get in a mess? You ever get in trouble? You ever get in a mess beyond you? You ever pray and the Lord answer? How about every day? And then what do you do? You go to the next trouble and ask him to get you out of that one, right? Well, as you know, you should thank the Lord, right? Do you ever do that? When he answers prayer, do you thank him? Do you tell anybody else? Now, this is important. From a biblical point of view, when the Lord blesses you and answers a prayer and delivers you, redeems you out of a mess, you should praise him and go tell somebody else. Amen. Praise the Lord. Matter of fact, that's, that will do great wonders for your spiritual life. You need to talk about spiritual things. Uh, matter of fact, Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in day and night, so that you may observe to do all that I've commanded you. I've all been struck, always been struck by that. I would expect him to say, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mind, but you should meditate in it. But he doesn't. He says, it shall not depart out of your mouth. You need to talk about spiritual things. I know people who know the Lord, 
And I never hear them so much as give a spiritual grunt about things spiritual. Makes me wonder, what kind of relationship do you have with the Lord? I mean, can you imagine? Uh, If you have a relationship with the Lord, you're going to talk about it. It's just going to happen. And if you don't, you won't. That doesn't mean you aren't saved. It just means you're not a bunch of a relationship with him. But if you do, then talk about it. That's important for you and for the people who hear you. They need to hear that God is alive and working in your life. It encourages them. So tell a bunch of people. Let me tell you what the Lord did. I lost my keys and I said, I spent 20 minutes trying to find them and I couldn't find them. This actually happens to me. And I found them. And I call my wife and say, you're never going to believe I just found my keys. You should do that, right? And go tell somebody. Don't just keep it to yourself. It's amazing what that'll do to encourage other people, not just you. All right, this passage is really kind of simple. When you are falsely accused, what do you do? Get offended? Get angry? Retaliate? Well, let me tell you what David did. He asked God to examine himself to demonstrate that he was innocent. He asked God to deliver him from his accusers. It's basically what's going on here. And then he said, you do that and I'll publicly praise you when you get done. How's that for a twist on being accused falsely, huh? Now, I'm going to I'm not done. I've looked at all the verses. I want to squeeze some more juice out of this orange. Um, I want to talk about this for just a minute. I want to make some suggestions. Some in this passage and some beyond it. Here's what I'm saying to you just in case you missed it. When you are falsely accused, take it to the Lord. And now I want to add a word. First. That's important. Because when you're accused, you automatically want to get defensive and angry. Then you lash out. Give it to the Lord first. Now, just say, Lord, I'm innocent of this one. I mean, I got plenty you can, you know, I got plenty of other kinds. But in this case, I'm innocent. So take advantage of this. Lord, I'm innocent and I'm bringing it to you. You judge me. Now, what does that do? Oh, that's that's great stuff. I'm not allowing your judgment to stand because you're not my judge anyway. He is. That's a great truth. Now, Having said that, and this is why I say I want to go a little beyond the passage, I don't think that means you can't defend yourself. And that's why I added the word first. I think you ought to take it to the Lord first, and that calms your soul down, and then maybe there is a place for defending yourself. Jesus did on some occasions. What I'm fascinated with is sometimes Paul did that and sometimes he didn't. And that's why you need wisdom to know when to do it and when to not. That's another story. That's another issue. 
But the point I want to make is, before you do anything, take it to the Lord. Recognize that He's the judge anyway, and His judgment's the only one that counts. All right? A second observation, according to this passage. Paul keeps, I'm sorry, David keeps arguing that that he's walked in integrity. So, if, I guess what I'm trying to say is you need, to, you need to walk in innocence, in righteousness, and you're going to be falsely accused anyway. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you can't prevent that, but you don't let that keep you from walking in integrity, in innocence, in right. Just do what is right. But you see, that's one of the great lessons that I think comes out of this. And that is that even if you're walking righteously, you're still going to be falsely accused. Sometimes young Christians get the idea, now that I know the Lord and I'm walking with Him, I'm not going to have the problems I used to have. I hate to be the one to break this to you. We live in a sinful world full of sinners. Wicked people, he calls it in this passage. So you can walk with the Lord and still be falsely accused. You can do it right and be falsely accused. You can be not guilty and be falsely accused. Right? Okay. So, I want to tweak that just a bit. and This is important. You need to separate yourself from the sin, but that doesn't mean you should separate yourself from sinners. I think you could read this passage and get the idea that you should have nothing to do with them. And that's why I emphasize going through it that he's saying, I didn't sit with them. And the idea is participate with them in their idolatry, their hypocrisy, uh, their schemes, their bribes. I didn't participate in all of that. Well, then if you take that too far, you become a monk. You isolate yourself. And that's not biblical either. You should not isolate yourself. One author put it like this. We should note that there is an aspect of separation that's not brought out in this psalm. Though we should separate from sinners as far as silent assent and complicity in their evil is concerned, we should not be isolated from them when it comes to telling them about their need for Christ. The Lord Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. He not only received them, but ate and drank with them. But he never compromised his loyalty or failed to tell them about their sin and their need of forgiveness. When invited to the house of Simeon, he carried his father's business with him to the Pharaoh's, uh, Pharisee's table. He explained to the Pharisee the nature of forgiveness of sin and the secret of true love. He declared the saving nature of faith. If Christians who argue in favor of intimacy with unconverted people will visit the house in the spirit of the Lord and speak 
on behalf as he did, let them by all means continue the practice. So here's the rule. You need to have relationships with people that don't know the Lord. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But the, but, the, but, the, but the real principle is this. You can be friends with them as long as you are influencing them and they are not influencing you. The minute they start influencing you is the minute you need to find a new set of friends. But as long as they're not influencing you, be a friend of sinners. I have good authority on that. Jesus. I have one more observation. With this I conclude. Jesus, the righteous, holy Son of God, was falsely accused. Now there are several things we can make out of that. One I've already made, that just because you're doing it right doesn't mean you won't be falsely accused. But I want to pursue another point. Let me read you a verse from Matthew. The Son of Man came calling, I mean eating and drinking, and they said, look, a glutton and a wine-bimber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now here's the accusation. He just went to dinner with a tax collector. And in ancient Israel, they hated tax collectors with a passion because they were Romans. And they said, he's a glutton. Not what happened. I just went to dinner and you're calling me a glutton. And they served wine and you're calling me a wine bibber. That's exactly the way false accusations come about. You do, and I think that's the kind of thing David was doing. And they accused him of all kinds of things. Well, they did it to Jesus. And Jesus continued to eat with sinners. Matter of fact, you know that famous passage in Luke 15? The accusation in Luke 15 is, why are you eating with sinners? And he told three parables in a row. Told about the lost coin. Talked about the lost sheep talked about the lost son. In other words, he's saying, you're accusing me of eating with sinners. That's true. You know why? They're lost. That's why I'm eating with them. So here's my point. You ready for this? I've asked you for several Sundays, do you want to grow spiritually? You want to grow? Now what does that mean? means to grow to spiritual maturity. What does that mean? You're going to be Christ-like, right? If you're going to be Christ-like, you have to be falsely accused. So the next time it happens, don't be shocked. It's part of God's plan to conform you to Christ. Just be sure you're innocent and you take it to him. And that's, my friend, how you handle false accusations. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for giving us your Son as a Savior. And thank you for giving us your Son as an example for us to be conformed to him and giving us this opportunity to do so by experiencing some of the same things he experienced. But Father, my prayer, my desire is that you would teach us by your grace to be conformed to him by taking it straight to you. Lord, may this become a reality in our lives and not just a sermon we hear. In Jesus' name, amen.